Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 84. Federation is bad with Oren Shaw. I'm joined by my co-panelist, Coraline Ada Emke. Hey, everybody, it's Coraline, and our guest today is Oren Shaw. You may be wondering why Oren is back on the show, and we just talked to her a little while ago. But as a result of our conversation last time, kind of at the end when we were done recording, Oren had an idea for another topic that seemed really, really, really interesting to us. So we decided to schedule another podcast interview with Oren to talk about Federation. Oren, for those who missed your star episode, you want to introduce yourself briefly before we get into the topic? Sure. Hi. As mentioned, I'm Oren Shah. You can find me on Twitter as at Oren. I say I do DevOps, but what I actually do nowadays is more culture and thinking about culture in the DevOps frame and about how moving DevOps forwards requires a much stronger focus on culture than we're used to. And I think that's really interesting. I also take photographs in my copious free time. I actually have one of your books of photographs, Oren. That is super cool. Thank you for supporting me. Yeah. So um, we wanted to talk about federation today. Can we start by defining our terms? So federation is a tech pattern that you probably have maybe used in tech companies with your product. But what I'm thinking about with federation is like this idea of individualized nodes that are run by a disparate group of people. So I run a node and you run a node and our nodes talk to each other. So participants on my node and participants on your node can interact. So we see this as technical things artifacts like IRC or XMPP or email even, or lately Mastodon is kind of driving this conversation. Um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking when I say federation. Yeah, the first thing that came to mind for me was Mastodon, because I think that was the first situation where I found that identity management posed some significant challenges. When I'm used to being Coraline Ada on Twitter, but being Coraline Ada on Mastodon doesn't quite mean the same thing. Yeah, it really doesn't. And that's a wonderful group of questions right there. So you kind of hit the nail on the head. Who are you on Mastodon? You're Coraline Ada on one Mastodon, but you're not Coraline Ada on Mastodon because on Mastodon doesn't exist as a concept, right? Right. Just like with email, you're at a certain server. You're not at everything. Right. And so we, in my opinion, with like weekly, weak, weak identity, there is no strongly correlated identity. And it's even, can you prove that this is you? You're just saying it's you. And I suppose there's some upsides and downsides to that, given the whole, in the context of Facebook and true names and, and all pseudonymity, there, there's a lot to unpack with whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Well, I think I think there's both sides of that argument. On the one hand, we don't have singular identities. I, Oren, um, speaking to you now, am a different identity than the bombastic Twitter identity that I often wield. It is different than what I go outside with to talk in public. It's different than what I go outside with when I'm meeting with clients. These are different facets of my identity. Like We cannot have or ever think that we have a single centralized identity or identity construct. So federation in this way, like Mastodon in this way, I could have different Mastodon accounts that are still me, but aren't the same facet of me. I was actually recently on a podcast called Staying Alive in Tech, where we were talking about the notion of federated identities. And I was talking about the fact that in the early days of the internet, one of the things that was great for me as a 
not yet transitioned trans person was the fact that there was no unified identity anywhere. And in all these different spaces, whether it was an IRC server or Usenet or a mush or a mud, I could choose the way I presented myself to the world. And that gave me a lot of freedom for experimenting with my identity. But it does seem like in the age of Facebook and Google and GitHub, that we are moving toward, at least companies are making this attempt, making this attempt to move us toward a consolidated, federated identity where in the past we had more control and now everything is becoming more and more centralized. That is definitely a thing that they're pushing for. And that's harmful and problematic in a lot of ways. Like Google tries to associate all of my various facets and all of your various facets so they can convince other people to sell us stuff. You might only like this thing in this context. Cool. Why don't you go buy it? Because we know that you like that thing at all. And that is the primary motivation, right? Is advertising because that's how all these internet companies supposedly make their money. It's amazing. Their social contract is you get to advertise at me so I can have an internet. Why did we decide that was okay? That's a different conversation. Perhaps because it's at more of an invisible cost. Although at yeah. this point, you couldn't pay them to not take your private data. Facebook has made noises in light of, you know, being dragged in front of the U.S. Senate, Congress, I forget, about like offering a paid to play on Facebook. So there's some noises and the, hopefully the GDPR actually drives a lot of conversations and changes in that area. So what are the bad sides of federated identity from your perspective? Well, have I got some thoughts for you? Um, so I actually want to go back to Usenet that you mentioned a little while ago as kind of like my first point. And the examples I have were different, and we'll touch on them in a little bit. But Usenet. Usenet is probably, with email, one of the first core federated systems that defined the internet. For a long time, Usenet was the internet. And like predating the web, Usenet was it, right? And this is cool. So what are the major flaws with Usenet? One of the major flaws with Usenet, as I can see it, was you have that faceted identity. So you had people like, and I wish I had thought of Usenet earlier, I would have gone and looked this up. But there was a personality on Usenet, a troll identity whose name I've forgotten, but there is a distinct troll identity on Facebook. No one ever knew who it was, but they were able to be that. And because of the nature of Usenet, it, it was really hard to block them. And that's kind of like one of the core features of Federation is how do you throw people out? You've built a system in a specific way to enable specific means of conversation. And this is, I think, leading from Usenet, my first major point is there is a huge amount of social political understanding of how the world should work that goes into federated systems. And Usenet captures this beautifully. And to continue going, the core underpinning idea here is of free speech. Free speech, as I grew up with it in Canada, um, was very specific in terms of what you were allowed to say or do, because things like hate speech are actually illegal under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So this mentality of like free speech at all costs that comes out of the U.S. is not what I grew up with and is not, I don't think, is super common in New Zealand either. But the Internet, Usenet, grew out of this very strong free speech at all costs mentality. That is the basis of the internet. Like the basis of the internet is even more profoundly about free speech because the basis of the internet is resist nuclear holocaust or devastation. 
so it had to stay up at all costs. So the, that is built into the basic framework of the internet and the basic framework of the social systems that drove creation of the internet. Like these people were building on the idea of can communicate at all costs. Usenet was built out of that mentality. So we have a system that's built on the idea of you can communicate at all costs. Cool. You can at all costs. Now what? They never considered the converse situation. What do you mean? There are some people that we don't want to communicate with, and we don't want to allow them to communicate at all costs. Right. And we're seeing that today. I mean, we've got a wide variety of people that Twitter is enabling to continue having that conversation, but that's like a different topic. And I'd like to not digress down that way quite yet. But there's a secondary social cost around this, um, around Usenet and around the way Usenet is structured. And that is onboarding becomes exceedingly hard because Usenet had this cool idea of block files, ways of just dropping messages from people you don't want. So people could just cut out huge swaths of the conversation from people they didn't know. What does that do to people joining Usenet for the first time? From what I see, people joining Usenet from the first time don't have those filters, and there's no way of communicating that you should have these filters. You're just getting raw, unfiltered, free speech at all costs mentality without a consideration of the social cost to newcomers. So these people can't avoid it. They don't know how to avoid it, and they don't have a means to ask for, who should I be blocking? Because if they ask, they're going to get like a massive torrent of bile and hate for asking. Like, how dare you ask that I be blocked or that you can block me? And it comes from that source. You can see that mentality coming through today. Like all of the block lists that came out of uh, hate movements like Gamergate, all of these things drove that same exact same conversation of how dare you block me? But this is a massive social cost. And this within Usenet is deeply problematic. Whose job is it to onboard? That's a really good question. And in Federation terms, uh, no one's. In Federation terms, the social community is supposed to onboard you. And, okay, we're going to wander off into contempt culture territory here, if if you don't mind. I think that might have been inevitable. <laughs> oh, it's, it's inevitable. Remember Eternal September? Mm-hmm. For our listeners who don't know what Eternal September is, and it wasn't actually Eternal, but Eternal September was, I believe, 1993 in September, AOL was suddenly connected to Usenet. And this was a big deal because AOL was a walled garden at the time. Um, they had their own forums and their own forum culture and their own entire swath of people communicating every day with their own social norms. And all of a sudden, they're connected to Usenet, which has its own distinct social norms and communication style and how you use Net. So, well, okay, why is it called Eternal September? Well, in Usenet terms, September was when a whole bunch of students would show up at university for the first time, and because the internet was not widely distributed yet, suddenly they have access to the internet for the very first time. And they have this Usenet thing, which is a giant forum full of all sorts of interesting content, and they have to be taught how to participate. And you can find artifacts on the internet, which is like, this is our style guide. This is the communications expectations that you have Nothing as like appropriate and necessary as a code of conduct, but like just like don't talk post and other such things like don't all caps. So this was the onboarding strategy. You would be told to go look at this thing, often in an abrasive way. You'd be told you're not allowed to participate here unless you do these things. And if you didn't participate in the way that was put out, you would get block filed slowly but surely by everyone in that community. 
but you wouldn't notice. You wouldn't see that. It's We call it hell banning now, but that's the kind of effect that you would get. So onboarding wasn't anyone's responsibility, but it should have been everyone's responsibility. Like These people were coming and saying, hey, I want to play too. But instead of being met with welcoming or open arms, they were met with one of the huge fundamental problems with Federation, which is there is no accountability. Whose fault is this? Whose responsibility is this? Well, it's no one's. So no one does it. Or the people who do do it and step up for it get overwhelmed super quickly because what are they supposed to do? Like there's this mass of people that keep coming in. They're one person or two people. They can't keep up with that. And they can't go around and tell everyone else, hey, uh, maybe you could stop block filing this person because I've kind of talked to them and they understand how to play now. Unless too late for that. If I remember from that far long ago, block filling was one treatment. Uh, just flaming into oblivion was an alternate treatment that you could be given to other newbies, which is equally harmful, I would say. If not yeah. more so, because then you're you're sort of directly being told never come here again versus just slowly depopulating and wondering where everyone's gone. And this becomes part of like the archives and the history. So if you have publicly accessible history, and I think a lot of Usenet servers did, at least to some extent, then cool, newcomers are seeing that you are willing to be severely abusive to newcomers or severely abusive to people who violate your social norms in like tiny ways. That's super hostile and off-putting, but there's nothing you can do about it because the system is designed from the ground up to promote and enable speech at all costs. But we see the same kind of thing on Twitter, or and then Twitter is not federated. Um, so, yeah, Twitter isn't federated, but Twitter derives from this mentality. And this comes down to, like, all technology is political. All technology encodes the politics that it was built in, and Twitter comes out of that kind of... There's a really good uh, essay that I highly recommend everyone read called The Californian Ideology, which really, really talks about like the genesis of these ideas. Um, this was written in the early 90s, so it doesn't cover a lot of like new things, but it covers why Twitter is the way it is in a lot of ways. Because Twitter is the way it is because of this early cultural paradigm of speech at all costs. So tech people learned that taught the next generation, like the 90s generation, my generation, and then taught the next generation, the 05-ish generation, which was Twitter generation. It's a really weird way of looking at it, but that's how I do. I think it makes perfect sense. Each successive generation was bigger, but took so much context and history and learning from those who had come before, even if it was presented in uh, not entirely friendly terms. And it's so ironic that of all the things to pass along, we would pass along that and not learning about like technical artifacts of things that really were bad ideas and should not be repeated. Like as developers, we're constantly repeating the mistakes of our forebears because we have no sense of our own history. Survivor bias, right? The people who stuck around were the people who could tolerate toxicity and reflect it. So they learned to teach that. And they learned so many things that are bad patterns that now we are still dealing with. So Mastodon was supposed to be the antidote to Twitter, right? How do you think Mastodon has been doing in that regard? I think Mastodon has made the same mistake as Usenet from the kind of cultural conversations I'm seeing on it, specifically around the idea of the Fediverse, where everyone is supposed to be connected to everyone else at all times. Like every node must join the Fediverse. 
But this carries like the exact same problem with Usenet of who do I block? How do I find out what the appropriate block list is? Why is the block list the way it is? Like which servers am I banning and why? It's not communicated ever. So you're expected to join this thing. You're expected to promote and host this content, which may actually be illegal in your domain where you've put the server. Um, this is a concern I have. I am planning eventually on bringing up a Mastodon node. And so I have to go learn about all of the New Zealand laws about what legal speech is because I am legally liable for hosting that content. So it wants to be like this alternative to Twitter. It wants to be like the solution to Twitter, but it isn't. It can't be. And it can't be because A, we're promoting free speech at all costs. So you're, you have the exact same problem as Twitter. B, blocking that content is unevenly distributed because you might happen to be on a server where the admin is absent and isn't blocking those servers. The admin isn't keeping up, so isn't blocking those servers. That you might be on a server on an instance that lets those people stay. There might be people on that server that are allowed to keep posting that content. It wasn't even clear but, to me when I signed up, like, what should I look for in an instance? That's not really documented anywhere. It's like, do I just pick one with a cool name? Or, you know, like, exactly what's differentiating those instances? And what kind of responsibility does the instance admin have to me? And that's never communicated. There is ostensibly uh, an about page for your instance, which talks about this stuff, but that's not easily discovered. How are you supposed to audit that when you're looking for uh, an instance? Exactly what you're saying. How do you know? What legal domain is this instance in? And if I'm posting to it, what does that mean for my liability? This is never discussed. Not to mention the fact that there are no restrictions on what's posted in that about, so it could be completely fabricated and contrafactual. Exactly. And this has other, like, I'm, I touched on the idea of what if the admin is absent or doesn't care in some regard? This is a huge social cost because this carries underlying understandings and effects around what's going on. And this stretches back to Usenet as well. If I'm running a Usenet node, if I'm running a Usenet server, A, I can apply whatever filtering rules that I want. I can drop messages and drop entire groups. And this was a thing that got noticed. So if you're federating off my Usenet, cool, you're losing groups that I have determined are harmful. Do you know that I'm doing that? Possibly not. But also, what if when the admin vanishes or doesn't care, why? Why have they not cared? And this points at the idea of what Federation ignores, which is the social cost of running an instance. If I'm maintaining an instance, what support networks do I have? And these support networks aren't technical support networks. These are this is how you should be running an instance. This is how you should find a community of instance runners where you can talk about the difficulties and problems and social needs of running an instance. This is where you, we have nothing communicated on that. I've talked about running a Mastodon and none of this has come forward ever. So this frames itself on the idea that if you want to run an instance, if you want to participate in the technical administration of this system at any level, even if you have different goals, if like you have a social goal to enable a specific kind of communication and safe communication for a specific subset, and we can look at Sweater for this, there is 
a fundamental underpinning idea that you should care more about the technology than anything else. And this comes from nerd culture of tech is most important and should always be most important. So if Mastodon was supposed to be the antidote to Twitter, Mastodon has the same problems as Twitter. What's the antidote to Mastodon? Well, the the antidote to both is understanding social systems, right? It's understanding our social needs and our social obligations when we're participating in these systems. And now that Mastodon is requiring a new level of participation, i.e. there's not just users, but administrators, what are our social obligations? We need to answer that. And we need to like find ways of talking about that that we don't have. I think Mastodon can be its own answer, but it needs to have those conversations. And I think the nature of federation and the nature of how nerds think about federation makes it hard to have those conversations. That's one of the core reasons why I think federation is bad, is it encourages a technology over everything mentality, and it encourages ignoring social costs because it's based in a technology is everything mentality. Yeah, that certainly forms a lot of the thinking. I mean, I think, like, as you're saying, the, the California ideology is not something I'm super familiar with, but I think I can get the gist of it from just the history of the Internet. And it seems like it's, it's one of those you're swimming in it sort of things where unless you've thought deeply about it or read books about it, you don't even notice that this is how you're thinking about how technology is supposed to work. It's just how technology works because everything you've used and everything you've built and everything you're probably building right now is based in that same culture and that same outlook. And so popping out of that to even start looking at these other things is difficult. And there's huge numbers of feedback loops that say looking outside of this is wrong or harmful or broken. Like if As soon as I start talking about culture, people tune out. If as soon as anyone starts talking about culture, people tune out. Coraline, you just posted the post-meritocracy manifesto, which I loved. It was great work. Thank you. Such good. But the Thanks. backlash... The backlash, the political, like this is a political reflection of technology. It is saying this is what we are and we don't want to be. And so just stepping outside and saying this is what we are and we don't want to be is hugely transgressive. There is a feedback loop that says do not transgress this. Yeah, I definitely saw a lot of of pushback on that, a lot of snarky tweets a lot of activity in all the usual places where the uh alt-right gathers and someone even reported it to twitter as a violation of terms of service and luckily i have a a good network so i was able to get with someone at twitter to reverse that call but i don't understand where the backlash is coming from are people so entrenched in these ideas about technology that like what makes them react so strongly when someone questions the way things are. I watched a really interesting YouTube video a while ago. It talks about why people react the way they do if one is vegetarian or vegan and says, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I'm vegan. And people who conform to these dietary systems will often be able to respond to that and like, yeah, actually I've totally seen that all the time. It's horrible and I hate it. But this video was talking about kind of why that happened. And the reason that this video postulated for why that happened is all of a sudden, this person who is hearing, I'm sorry, I'm vegan. And that's great. Thank you. But I'm I'm not going to. What they're hearing isn't I'm vegan. What they're hearing is I've made a choice. I have thought about it. And you haven't. And what if you're wrong? 
And that's not what you're saying. You're saying, uh, yeah, I'm vegan. Sorry, but uh, I appreciate it. But sorry, you're not saying you're wrong. You're not saying any of these things. You're just saying I have done the thing, but the person hearing it is hearing. I haven't made a choice. I haven't thought about this. I have never chosen. So it becomes a very defensive reaction because all of a sudden you're com- you're confronted with the idea that you haven't chosen. That you haven't thought about it. You've just participated blindly in the system. That can be very confrontational. So when we start talking about tech culture and the ways that tech culture malfunctions, we're bumping into similar concepts and similar constructs of, and this is kind of part of what contempt culture is. It teaches us the way that we belong. So we come along and we and you offer the post-meritocracy manifesto. You offer the contributor covenant. We do work on the codes of conduct. And we're saying we've thought about this stuff and we don't like what we see. And they're, they're just dropped into this defensive loop. And they're surrounded by people who are in the same defensive loop. And they're filled with this sense of, oh, God, what if I'm wrong? When my entire feedback loop, everything I've ever been taught about how to be- perform and behave and belong. And that's the key. And belong is now being challenged. So we can say, uh, these things kind of suck, and they have very few responses. It sucks that we teach ourselves to be this way. It sucks that we let tech culture be this way. I tried to bring people along. One of the pieces of feedback I got from one of my managers, actually a couple of my managers over the past year, is that I have strong opinions, and I do actions based on those strong opinions, and I kind of have, a, have this assumption that people agree with my strong opinions and I need to do more work to kind of bring them along and show my work and show what thinking led me to have these opinions. So one of the things that I tried to reflect in the post-meritocracy framework actually said, if you have not thought much about this topic, here is some reading that you can go and do. And I have an entire page of resources on where meritocracy breaks down. And some of it is very confrontational and some of it is very analytical and some of it is very academic. But maybe I got to some people through that, but even that wasn't enough to prevent the backlash. At this point, Twitter has given us such a feedback loop around backlash. And Twitter isn't even the genesis of this. Usenet gave us such a feedback loop around backlash that it's really going to be hard to escape that. And no matter how much work we show, their belonging now hinges on the contempt of these new ideas. That's where it comes from. Their belonging hinges on contempt. They want to per- they want to belong. So they perform this. That's contempt culture. Yeah, we, we talked about this a bunch on last week's episode with Tim Chevalier talking about the, the way identity gets caught up in belonging to these cultures and how when there's a critique of the culture, it's automatically translated as a critique of your personal identity. So you, you react to it, to the critique as, as a personal attack rather than a, well, let's assess the structure of what we're doing here and maybe we can make some changes. And that leads to a lot of heated reactions. <laughs> let's see. Very much so. Contempt culture gets reliably reposted on Orange website. And the one time it front paged, one time. Which is really interesting. It got 80 comments. I have not read them because, you know, why would you read comments on Orange website? It's terrible. But it got flag killed off the main page. And you can look at the ranking site and you can see it happen. Like it it front pages and then gets pushed off and it front pages again and then gets flag killed and it just drops. And that's that culture. That is that defensiveness coming to the forefront. I am challenging ideas and orthodoxy. Therefore, 
I cannot be allowed. And this is its own entire separate conversation around like the ideological bias of Orange Website. So yeah, if you point that out, people get really defensive too. Orange Website is hacker news for those who don't know. <laughs> Although using the word orthodoxy brings up an interesting parallel with religious fervor. It feels to me like that same, if you critique X system that I'm a part of, which I've identified with heavily, whether it's tech or Christianity or Hinduism, you take that as a personal attack and you respond with, I'd say, outsized, you know, a response to this as if you're, you're ta- like an attack on the system is going to be the end of the world that we can't possibly allow any sort of dissent within this context. I, I don't know that there's a like a if we thought if I thought about it deeply that I'd find a deep correlation there, but it reminded me of a similar reaction. And this has been noticed for decades. Like I saw people calling out this sort of adherence to a technical choice as uh, an identity in the late 90s when I was learning to code. Uh, I can see it in artifacts on Usenet going back into the early 80s. This mindset of choice equals identity within this belonging concept has been around for a while and and relating it to religion has been around for a very long time. Yeah, the VI versus Emacs has been referred to as a religious war. Um, I think mostly it's tongue-in-cheek, but I don't know if it's as tongue-in-cheek as people think. It's really not. If you go back and look at like Usenet archives, these people are seriously into this, and they are seriously vitriolic about it. And even if you ask them at the time, they would say something like, oh, it's they wouldn't probably say ironic. This is a very modern thing, but they would say it's not. It's meant in good fun, or it's just how the culture works. It's not meant to be taken seriously. But as an outsider or anyone who is not like deeply immersed in that, it's you can't read that into it. You can never read that into it. It comes off as serious because it must. It's sort of that level of ironic detachment, which sort of loops back around on itself and becomes actual fervor. And then maybe again, loops again into sort of faux detachment. Like we get into these meta levels that get super confusing as people try and defend themselves from ever having any sort of earnest opinion about anything. Yeah, but we can just apply Poe's law. It's super easy. For those of you who are not familiar with Poe's law, Poe's law says that uh, ironic extremism is indistinguishable from regular extremism. Someone in commenting snarkily on the post-meritocracy manifesto said they couldn't tell if it was a manifestation of Poe's Law or not. I, I, uh, I felt the same way. You can't see it, but I'm face blooming really hard right now. Picard.gif. Oh, my God. <laughs> so there's one other major point around why Federation is bad that I also want to loop back to and talk about if I can grab the thread of conversation and drag it back. Please do. Cool. So I touched earlier on the social cost of participating in this technical framework of I'm running an instance. Well, there's two major things that happen as a result of that. One of which we've talked about is like, what if the admin abandons it? Well, that sucks. But this has a cost, which is like the major flaw with Federation, like the biggest flaw, which is lock-in. As soon as you have deployed a version of a federated system, that's it. You're done. This is a version forever. And we can see this. Uh, we can see this really, really, really well. We can see this with, for instance, IRC. IRC has been around since, I think, 1989, maybe 88, somewhere in there. How often has IRC seen major protocol upgrades? 
I think we're almost at version three, but not quite. And version three is finally becoming kind of similar to Slack in terms of like user experience and onboarding. Slack came out in what, 2012? So that's a six-year lag. And that's just fine. Cool. We have version three of IRC. How long is it going to take for that to be distributed widely? How long is it going to take for the clients to pick it up? Will I be able to join servers that support IRC v3? How will I learn about onboarding with IRC v3? Like all of these questions are not answered. We're considering it at the protocol level of, oh, but the protocol supports these things. Therefore, it's fine. But that's not how it works over here in the world of admins get bored and leave, but the server is still there and they have some automated tasks that just kind of run security patches. And if you're not running dist upgrade on Debian, then you're not getting new versions of the software. So you're just getting security patches. So cool, your IRC daemon has been there for 10 years and you've got security patches all the way up, but you're not upgrading because you don't you're not present. And this is what I mean by lock-in. And we see this with XMPP. XMPP ostensibly said, wait, no, actually, we're baking this into the protocol. You can make extensions, but it's the same problem. There's all of these extensions for XMPP that ostensibly give you things that are taken for granted now, like global persistence of messages, or actually, that's the major one that bothers me, or being able to use them properly on your phone now, which requires that you don't have persistent connections to the internet. It relies more on the idea of push notifications. XMPP was built in a political context of you're sitting at a computer using a computer and have an active link. It was not meant for a political context where you're largely disconnected. But it's the same problem. Once XMPP shipped, that was it. Done. XMPP is what it was shipped as in like 2002. And all of these extensions are not widely distributed and cannot be widely distributed because you're running into the social network of people not being able to or not bothering or having abandoned their systems or not having the technical know-how to, to patch in these features or having built a server that didn't account for these features or built a client that didn't account for these features. And this is, I don't want to say insurmountable, but not a thing we've ever thought about when we think about dis of federated systems. We think about this, oh, but it's resilient. Oh, but it, it promotes free speech over all costs, but it doesn't pay attention to these, these social costs. And I bring this up as important because Slack. Slack and how Slack intersects with free software and free software community management I see numerous conversations coming across Twitter and Mastodon about how, oh, but free software shouldn't use Slack. Why are they? No one ever asks, why are they? They just go straight to, oh, but you shouldn't, and the moralization around that. But why are they? Well, they are because this is the way you get people to onboard. People will participate if there is a good, clean onboarding system, and Slack offers this. Slack has polished this. Slack has worked really well on this. So this is how we get people to engage now. Why aren't they using IRC? Well, they want to, but they can't because IRC is locked to 1989 and it can never not be. So we have these conversations. So Slack 8 IM, Slack 8 IRC, and that Discord's eating Slack, but that's a different conversation. But Slack did this because it thought about the social costs, because it centralized and it could think about the social costs and it could dissociate these costs from the people who needed to use it. Oh, and this is ignoring like the, the cost to projects of just running your own infrastructure, which is a giant pain. Don't try to avoid. And we see this with email. Like we think of email as this like long-term persistent good product. Product strong word. 
service thing. <laughs> Do you know when email got good? Like finally got good? 2005 when Gmail shipped. Gmail. And we yep. centralized because now we had a single point where all of the flaws of federation, like you could just inject spam into the network all willy nilly and people couldn't do anything about it. 2005, Gmail and everyone jumping on Gmail because this was the first time email was good. And now what do we see? Now we see that it's actually really hard to run your own singleton instance of mail because all of the mail servers will, the ma- the big mail servers, the important ones, Yahoo, Outlook, Gmail, there's probably a couple of others that I'm not naming, they'll drop your messages because generally they can make that assumption. If you're running your own mail server, you're sending trash and they're not wrong. Mastodon is going to have the same problem, right? Uh, Mastodon launched and now it's locked. Mastodon is now locked to version two years ago when it launched. And they can post updates. They can do these things. And only what's going to happen is no one can use those new features because there might be well-trafficked servers over here that can't. So now there needs to be an entire layer of negotiation. Oh, can you even look at this content? No. Okay, now I'm dropping messages to send to you. Or now you're dropping messages that I'm sending. And this is not a technical flaw. This is a social flaw in the way we consider federation. So it sounds like we're looking at two different solutions. There's the single company runs the whole thing like Slack or Facebook or Twitter, which solves some problems but has plenty of downsides. And there's the federation, which is theoretically freer but has even more costs to it and even more downsides that exclude even more people. Is there a third path? I think the Federation path can work. Well, I wanted to touch on one other flaw, and then I'll get into why I think Mastodon actually represents the best form of Federation. The one other thing I wanted to mention with Federation as a flaw is witches.town. And for those of you who aren't familiar, witches.town was a Mastodon instance that had been running for a while that shut down. And this raises a bunch of questions like, what happens to the archives? What happens to the identities that people have established on witches.town that are no longer federating and no longer exist? This comes down to, what is my federated identity? How do I manage identity across a federated system? Well, my identity, the place where I established identity, doesn't exist. And federation doesn't respond to this at all. It offers no answers. So everyone on witches.town had to distribute to somewhere else and go through that the whole thing we talked about earlier around legality and what does the server promote or not promote and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not to mention losing followers, right? Not to mention losing followers, losing your entire community. You lose your entire community when these things happen. And it doesn't matter that your community was spread across a federated system at all. That does not matter because you've lost the central axis of your identity. And we have no answers for this. This question does not get posed. Even I don't think that conversation came out of witches.town failing. It just didn't happen. And why not? Why didn't it happen? Because as a community, tech ignores social consequences. Okay, that last flaw with, and this flaw like extends across IRC and XMPP and email and everything. Like This is how the thing goes. An email, eventually, like people will bounce and they'll go, oh, I've lost contact and that will happen. So coming back to why I think Mastodon might actually be the first time that Federation could work well. And the reason for that is that we need to ignore the people who are like, who are saying you need to participate in the Fediverse. Everyone needs to be a part of the Fediverse. We need to make a replacement for Twitter. 
at all costs. And that was kind of like the initial messaging. And this is the free software time messaging around Federation and around Mastodon is we must make an alternative to X at all. So everyone must participate at all costs. And Mastodon doesn't require that. And Mastodon's user experience doesn't promote that. So you can communicate with people on other instances, but it's more complicated. You go at name, at server. And I mean, we're used to this for email, but for local users, it's just at name. It's very Twitter. And Mastodon lets you set up servers that you'll talk to. You can just block most of them. So what does this mean? Well, I think this means that Mastodon isn't federated. It's weakly federated. You can make sub-federations. You can make like little clusters that don't interact outside of the broader system. You can make communities, like strong community binds that you have a single place, like 5, 10, 15 nodes that constitute a weakly federated environment that isn't part of the main Fediverse and never wants to be. There is no bridge and shouldn't be. This gives us the power of federation. I.e., We're not on Twitter. We don't need to be on Twitter. No one wants to be on Twitter. But it gives us the ability to have a community that's tight-knit, but also give itself like technical support on how do I run the instance? How do I make an instance that conforms to our social norm? How do we migrate people if I can't run the server anymore? How do we maintain their identity? How do we do these things? And these are questions that smaller communities can answer, but the broader community can't. That's why I think Mastodon is really interesting, but it requires rejecting that social mindset of, no, everyone needs to participate so that we can defeat Twitter. And it also requires effort on the part of the instance administrators to broadcast the fact that there is a community and then to have some sort of process by which people are accepted or rejected into the community and some kind of enforcement of community values. Which, again, tech culture doesn't offer us. It offers us none of these mentalities, none of these ways of thinking. It's just ignored. It's just ignored. And so, yeah, you're right. If we're doing this, we need to think about these things. We need to have those conversations. You know, it's absolutely fascinating. As as those words were coming out of your mouth, oh, what if we just don't massively federate everything? My brain, like, had a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, that's terrible. You can't let the communities split off. Then everyone won't be connected. Like, it was just automatic. <laughs> Even though I was listening to the rest of your words, it's like, yes, that is, that's what we want. There's that, that part that just grew up in this culture that thought, you can't do it that way. Yep. And honestly, there are flaws with this. They remain flaws. And Coraline, you brought this up. And this is kind of the problem with Federation as well, which is Metcalf's Law. We never consider Metcalf's Law, ever. And we ought to. Definition for those who don't know it? Metcalf's Law states that the value of a telecommunications network is the square of the number of participants. Which basically means that if you have three people in a network, the value is nine. If you have four, it's 16, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What this means is that you can't leave Twitter because everyone's on Twitter. You can't leave Facebook because everyone's on Facebook. Um, anything you go to will not have everyone. The value is not just smaller because there are fewer people there, but it is exponentially smaller. And this is where Mastodon is hard for me. I don't follow, I think I follow 10 people, but discovering new people is super, super hard. How do I find people I want to talk to? How do I participate in conversations? I can't read the global feed. It's a little too big for that now. But how do I discover anything here? And this is why I think we need conversations about this. How do I find, as you were just saying, Caroline, how do I find the communities I want to participate in? 
I don't Interestingly, know. I just looked up on Mastodon, and if I square the number of followers I have on Mastodon, it's about 15 to 20% fewer than the number of followers I have on Twitter. If I squared the number of followers I have on Twitter against Mastodon, it would be orders of magnitude different. And how do we solve that? I mean, Twitter I've been on for 10 and a half years, so it's incomparable in many ways. But at the same time, how do we reconcile this? How do I tell people this is where I am? How do I tell people it's me? And not just someone pretending to be me and subtly shifting my message to something that I would disagree with. That's something that scares the crap out of me because impersonation is a technique that's used by the alt-right to intimidate and bully. And I saw that on the uh, Ruby core mailing list when I tried to propose a code of conduct for the Ruby community. There are people in that in that thread who are pretending to be me. Yeah. So this gets into what Facebook is pushing that we all kind of resent, which is singleton identities. In order to authenticate you as Coraline on this little community network, we have to authenticate you in some way. We can't just let you be an anonymous person. And then now what? Now we're doing the same things that we're ostensibly opposing, that we're ostensibly leaving because they're forcing us into a way we don't want to be, but we can't not. So what value are we getting, really? It's interesting thinking about how we could use this micro-federated Mastodon model. If we elevate the community to a higher level rather than a collection of individuals, if we consider the community to be something that's highly organized, highly self-involved, you know, taking care of newcomers, making sure we get rid of the troublemakers, you could create communities that have that value of enforcement where I know that if I join X community, I know that the Coraline I talked to there is the right one, that we know that they would have vetted these accounts and that the other people that I run into there are going to be, you know, the sort of people I want to talk to. Like you could make the social contract far, far more important than any of the technical contracts. That requires really careful work because as soon as you start saying, oh, the community is responsible for this, you run into the Usenet problem, like immediately. The community is responsible, and therefore under game theory, no one is. And everyone's optimal play is to go, oh, I will take advantage of the community that is willing to do this. I just won't do the work because it's more valuable to me to not do the work. So no one does the work because the work takes time and effort and, and emotional energy, and it's not easy. So it just falls by the wayside. Yeah, and, and relying on diffuse individual volunteerism, I think, is is going to fall into that trap. I, I would think that you would have to have a far more organized structure for the community in order for that to continue working. And that doesn't scale. It can't scale. And this is why micro communities and micro federations need to be the default, the norm, is because past a couple hundred people, like past the Dunbar limit, you can't keep up. You can't keep that in your head. You can't manage a community that size without like dedicated full-time staff managing the community. Right. So what do you do? Well, you let it grow or you have some payment mechanism. And Twitter uses ads and Facebook uses ads and they're trying to do that. But again, it's escaped their scale. They can't do it anymore. And we see this. We see um, Facebook abdicating responsibility for their network. We see Twitter abdicating responsibility for their network. We see, actually, I don't know if LinkedIn is abdicating. I have no idea. LinkedIn is weird. But we see this. They, and we'll have the same problems if we're federating. 
like Federation is vulnerable to exactly the same thing, only more so. And so any approach has to think about this. It has to think about how do we how do we pay people? And I hate having to use capitalist terms for this, but how do we make it so that the value of performing this labor exceeds the value of under game theory, not performing this labor, but enjoying its fruits? I wonder if there are non-capitalistic solutions to that. I would love there to be, but uh, the thing about living in a political system is that <laughs> it's very hard to think outside the political system because it frames everything you you do and think and are because it is the implicit background upon which you live. True enough. And I'm certainly not schooled enough in those types of thinking to propose an alternative, but it makes me curious as to what might be out there. Well, I mean... Unfortunately, because we have to live in capitalism, even though we might have alternative mentalities for approaching valuing this labor and ensuring that people are able to perform this labor and choose to, if I want to moderate a community, I am paying for that. I am paying to do that thing. I am paying in my free time. I am paying in opportunity cost where I could be going and doing work that pays me money, that I need to pay rent and buy food. This is my cost. I am paying to participate in this community. And Without something that what I'm getting out is more than I'm paying, uh, it becomes very hard, even though I have strong ideals that I want this, that I need this, that Twitter makes me feel like I'm complicit in my own oppression. And I don't like that feeling. But Metcalf's law and the amount of labor I'll have to put in means the activation cost to switch is so high. Even though we could come up with alternative systems, they're still bounded by capitalism. They're still bounded by our need to perform capitalism. And that, I don't know how to escape that. Wish I had an answer for you. Fully automated luxury gay space communism. Sign me up. Oren, we've talked about a lot of really interesting points here. The pros and cons of a federated system versus a centralized identity management system. What's good about these things? What's bad about these things? The labor required to make these things work as an alternative to the more commercial models and the problematic models that we're seeing. And one thing that I didn't hear during our conversation was, oh, here's the obvious solution that we should be doing instead of all of this stuff, because it will solve every single one of our problems. And I don't know if such a solution exists. But what I do think is that the questions that were raised during this conversation will spark lots of other conversations and maybe collectively we can get something closer to an ideal situation. Just move us move us forward even a little bit. That would be so great. So thank you for your ideas and thank you for the conversation. And let's continue the conversation. All of our listeners out there, talk to people. If you want to join us on our Slack community to talk about it, go to patreon.com slash greater than code and pledge even a dollar. And we'll talk about this stuff in our private Slack community. And I don't know. I'm, I'm so inspired and demotivated at the same time <laughs> by this conversation. I think we can do so much better. And I want that to be our call to action. I want all of us to think about how do we build a federation that supports its maintainers, that supports the admins, that supports good community management that wants that to be the norm instead of devaluing social, devaluing the costs, not the technical costs, not the financial costs, but the social costs of doing these things. I want a better system than what we have. And that's my call to action. Help me think of one. 
It's very compelling for sure. I think this, this conversation has been really interesting to me, especially as you're bringing up the various sort of implicit assumptions that tech, tech culture makes. I, I'm soaking in them. I have been since the eighties and becoming more aware of what those are is incredibly valuable. So thank you for helping me think about these things in a different way. I wanted to also reflect and say thank you both very much for having this conversation with me. A lot of these ideas have kind of been ephemerally floating around in the back of my head, and it's been so helpful to talk to people and just kind of iterate on them, work out like the implications, ask questions of each other, and find out more about what this these things mean. And so that's been super valuable, and I want to thank you both very much for that. And we're looking forward, Orin, to see what you do with it in the wider world. Oh, I imagine this will turn into a um, shouty blog post sometime soon. <laughs> I'll look forward to the Orange website. <laughs> Not for very long. Like, it'll only be there for about 10 minutes. <laughs> I'll, I'll just keep an eye out for your book deal. Oh, yeah. If you've got a book deal for me, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye.